Welcome to the final episode of the Nursing Australia Summer Series. This episode entitled Aged Care imposes a pretty simple but in part dire question. Where to from here? Over the last two years, the aged care sector has received an unbelievable amount of media coverage, scrutiny, rifle criticism, on the back of a Royal Commission, on the back of a pandemic, which really just exposed the holes that have existed for many years in aged care. When Australia compares itself to our counterparts overseas, the way in which we treat and care for elderly and vulnerable Australians is really not up to scratch. This isn't just my opinion, this is fact. Report after report, Royal Commission, industry insiders, nurses, doctors, healthcare professionals, consumers, consumers and their family, residents of aged care facilities, those who access home care packages. This episode, we'll meet Mari Vaughan, who's an aged care nursing extraordinaire. Mari has dedicated her career to aged care nursing and is also the co-author of the APNA book, Foundations of Aged Care, which was published at the back end of 2022. And there are links in the show notes of this episode if you do want to check that out. Now, in this session, you'll hear Mari discuss aged care nursing in a rapidly changing environment. Aged care has received, as I just said, intense media scrutiny, particularly on the back of the Royal Commission and the COVID-19 pandemic. The demography of aging and staffing pressures add complexity to Australia's society's ability to uphold their responsibility to the aging person. Welcome to Nursing Australia Summer Series, Aged Care, where to from here. Good morning. I'm Murray Vaughan. I'm a nurse practitioner. I've worked in aged care for well over 30 years now. So I'm going to talk a little bit about an alternative model of care and reflect upon the fact that residential care, even if you don't have you don't work in aged care or you don't have family or friends in aged care, it's been pretty front and centre in the media. I recently wrote this um, book, which I have here, The Foundations of Aged Care, and it gave me cause to reflect about the complexity and detail that you have to be across to manage all the staff and all the, like you're the captain of the ship, all the residents on board at that particular time. So just a little bit about the media scrutiny. In 2009, Anne Connolly, she's done a lot of those Four Corners programs, and also she started that crowdfunding, because a lot of people were interested and wanted to get to the bottom of this, that was a three-year probe into aged care. The final documentary of all her work was meant to go on air on the 17th of September, the night before the Prime Minister called for a Royal Commission. So this is the power of the media and power of the media for good. We know some of the disgraceful and embarrassing media stunts that have been performed over the election, but there is such a thing as really good and powerful media and it's really great that APNA are harnessing that. Rick Morton is another person that I read. I don't know if you, any of you read Rick Morton. He's with the Saturday paper. He talks a lot about social inequality, health inequality, and he's covered the Royal Commission extensively from 2018 and he's reported on outbreaks in aged care and he has tied the failings in aged care to the aged care reform. So when all this came 
out in the Royal Commission, there were horrible things like malnutrition, understaffing, over-sedation, with attendant, not just poor, but fatal outcomes. And you would have seen some of those presentations from families in, in the Royal Commission. So with this public scrutiny, providers scramble to manage their reputational damage and their financial sustainability. And the thing that breaks my heart is that carers suffered real moral injury from the shame and the distress at participating in a failed system. You talk to endless carers and nurses that try their hearts out every day to do the right thing, but they know they don't have the resources to get over the line. And we have to acknowledge that and work out a way to support those staff so that we retain, many of them are left, but so that we retain the people that have got the fight in them to keep going. And residents particularly and families have been traumatised by this system and they have reacted by making it a public issue. The changes made under the Howard government back in the late 90s really has been a failed experiment. And I think that's worth contemplating. I first worked as an ACAT assessor. That's when I started at aged care. Before that, I worked as a community nurse and in ICU. And I was required to decide back in those days whether people would go into a nursing home or a hostel. And those were really important discrimination because going into a hostel was meant to be discriminatory. Whereas if you needed to go into a nursing home, it was really a health imperative. You had no other option if you were that frail and disabled, you needed nursing care. And to go into a nursing care, you would need an NH5, and to go into a hostel, you would need a 197. But eventually that was abandoned, and there was no discrimination between hostel and nursing home. And at the same time, the acuity of people going into aged care completely changed. People only went into aged care, hostel or nursing home when they were really quite frail. So it's very, very much changed. And if you go into any nursing home now, you don't see too many mobile active people unless they're suffering from cognitive impairment. So it was considered to be a lifestyle choice for people that would forego the responsibilities of the domestic sort of care. So that sort of brought into light this idea that it was a lifestyle choice, which it, it no longer is and probably never really was. So with these, the other side of this move into sort of bigger business and economies of scale and a, a market of aged care came tragically a reduction of nurses. So care was deprioritised while profits soared. Take a look at how the hours dropped. Residents and their families who paid large ingoing fees, and this is another thing that people don't understand. Everyone talks about you had to sell your home, it cost you half a million to get into some fancy place. But that doesn't pay for care, that pays for accommodation. The care is ACFI funding or now ANAC funding, and it used to be RCS. That's the part that the Commonwealth pays for. So the huge amount that people pay in, and they can be very big figures, that money is held in trust and returned to the estate at the end. So it, it is a lot of money, and it's money that's not available to the family, but it's not lost money. And that money is held in trust by the government. So the aged care facilities can't spend that on care even if they wanted to. They spend it on planting facilities and reinvesting into growing their business. So it was a real capitalist model of expansion was what was the only thing that was ever going to work, and it has failed. With this last election, there has been a change, as you know, that there's going to be one RN, 24 hours a day, which sounds fabulous until you think many facilities have over 100 residents. So that doesn't mean, because there's a 24-hour RN on, that the person in needs get, gets an RN when they need them. 
Of course, the RNs are ably supported in many cases by lots of great uh, personal care workers, but that also means that the RN role has expanded to a supervisor and an educator and a supporter and a director and a manager of a, a large team of workers. So even the most junior nurse would probably have six or seven personal care workers working to them, and she has to make sure that they know what they're doing and that they're well prepared and uh, updated and, and supported because the emotional labour and the complexity of the care that the personal care people are providing, they are the eyes and the ears and the hearts and the souls of aged care because they're the people that the older person has most to do with. And the RN, unfortunately, because of their very scarcity, is like one step removed from the actual lived experience of the resident. So, paradoxically, there's been this increasing acuity of residents, which means that moving into care is no longer discretionary or a lifestyle choice, but really is more than ever a clinical and health imperative. So, some of the things that we believed under this neoliberal construct that started 30 years ago, that care suffers under the medical model. Now, you've all heard this criticism of the medical model, that it's patriarchal and that it's uh, uh, not consultative and not consensual. And I don't know whether if you people that work regularly with general practice, would you think that that was the case, that it was antiquated and not progressive and not human rights focused? I wouldn't have thought so, but maybe I'm wrong. <laughs> so I think that we've thrown the baby out with the bathwater when we said that we don't need medical expertise in aged care. The other thing is that cutting-edge invasive treatments are futile for the elderly. Cutting-edge used to mean surgery, and often, you know, when you ask people about advanced care directives, do you want invasive surgery, they go, no. No, just leave me, let nature take its course. However, now, in the notion of invasive surgery, or indeed cutting-edge, has completely changed. And some of the real innovations, I think, about intraocular injections like Lucentis that preserve sight for retinal health, the anti-VEGF factor. I really worry that, that that technology is available and it's not complicated. It can be done in rooms. I would like to see ophthalmologists working in aged care because people in the community that are about and driving and reading and doing things will recognise their visual loss and go to an optometrist and then maybe to an ophthalmologist. What's happening to the people in aged care that are losing their sight when it's preventable? And I'm sure that's happening. And also this thing that it's not a tragedy. You remember, I think many people have said, oh, well, if people die in aged care, does that matter? If they're old people, wouldn't they just die of something else? You've all heard that, I'm sure. And aged care continues to bear the brunt of the COVID pandemic. As we speak now, there were outbreaks all over Victoria. There are staff shortages. There are people dying and yet we're not getting that daily tally. It's like we've just turned off and we're pretending because we want to pretend that the outbreak is over and that lifestyle is more important than clinical care, that older people go into have a choice and that the marketplace will deselect poor prescribers. And I would say none of those things are true. The other thing is that I, I'm an advocate for people to have beneficial care, not futile care. And sending people into hospital when there are alternatives doesn't do anybody any favours. No one wants to see older people spending extended periods on, in ER on a trolley, putting them at the risk of pressure injuries, falls and delirium. So any care that can be done uh, away from hospital is a benefit. 
but it doesn't mean that they're not entitled to ICU, CCU, any treatment that in consultation and could have proven benefit should be available to them. It shouldn't be based on their chronological age, but on their biological age and their ability to recover and the quality of, of life years that are left to them. Now, it's really important to preserve giving voice to the elderly. And one of many ways you can help the elderly is, like I said, really state-of-the-art, up-to-date ophthalmological care. Now, there are people come in and they do assessments, they prescribe glasses, handheld retinal cameras are now quite routine. Probably some of you have them in your practices. Years ago, one project I did was about getting a retinal camera in aged care so the really good optometrist that we had could image people's retinas. Now they're just little devices you carry around like a temperature thing or an AccuCheck. Quite simple. And they can pick up pathology before there are symptoms and preserve vision. And then that means that they can have a looting stance or intraocular injections that actually can preserve sight. And this should be available for everybody. It doesn't matter whether you're demented or not. You, your quality of life is going to be so much worse if you can't see the people that are coming in. And a really good optometrist, a skilled one, will not only do the assessments, prescribe the glasses, but it will talk to the stuff about what's this person's visual field like? On what side should you address them? What kind of print do they recognise? So that we can, as carers, do more to enhance people's ability to see us. Also, oral and health and dental care. I know that the Democrats now are talking about, you know, healthcare should be universal. Some of the most frightening things I've seen in aged care are people's mouths. So if you get a person that's resistive to care and end stage, and it's often really hard for the personal care workers or the nurses to provide mouth care and there's a dehydration and the fissuring. In fact, one time I got a geriatrician to come in to see someone. We eventually got to look in this man's mouth and the geriatrician I was with cried. He'd never seen such a sore, painful-looking mouth. And this guy had been hitting the staff. It wasn't the staff hadn't tried. So, you know, we have to do better at keeping oral and dental health ongoing and universal. And the other thing is hearing aids. People come in, you know, services, because their business model suits it to do hearing aids. But I can't tell you the number of times I've seen hearing aids that were maybe somebody else's hearing aid, because <laughs> they're really hard to label, um, that were blocked so they weren't working or that they were just disconnected. So the audiometrists need to teach the personal care work how to look after hearing aids, how to preserve the batteries, all those sort of things. It's an ongoing problem. Same with spectacles. People can't find, they don't have the right glasses on at the right time. Poor oral health can also affect people in terms of their appearance, their halitosis, and all of these things, and these are just the three little kind of health areas that I'm talking about, really stop the person from having their voice and being able to communicate with the people that are looking after them. And that would be a really good start if those three things could happen. So as chronic illness prevails, which I'm sure you know all about, what we want to do is a compression of morbidity so that you get a longer, not just a longer lifespan, but a longer health span. So the years of complex and disabling disease are compressed into the very last years of your life and hopefully would lead to a dignified and meaningful death for that person. And there are many opportunities to compress that morbidity. But when you talk about um, aged care, there are a few things that have come out from the Royal Commission, and one of them is would be that the food is shit. Would you agree? You've seen all those pictures of the party pies, the saveloys, tiny sliver of tomato. So 
The other thing that they've talked about is that we have to think how much harm we're doing with polypharmacy with first the use of antipsychotics, which really mitigates against free movement and active lifestyle exercise that so benefits people. And the second thing with the, I would say, unscrupulous, unethical promotion of opiates into the aged care sector and the poor science that supported that, we have created all of the ills of opioid addiction. And also I think it puts staff at risk because if you go into any drug cupboard in aged care, it's just full of opiates. And if, you know, you have staff that have addictions post-injury or stuff like that, you also put them at risk. And there's very much, much less oversight by nurses into medication than there used to be in the past. So we've talked about the nutrition in aged care. And the next thing would be exercise. We're drugging people so they can't move. Pretty antithetical to exercise. Also, we're quite risk averse. Most places in aged care have keypads on the exits onto the street. We assume that once people go into aged care, they no longer have free access to the community because they might get lost. I can remember when I first looked at this, or oh, maybe 30 years ago, I found that in Norway, a keypad on an exit door of a nursing home was considered a restraint. I also worked at an Aboriginal hostel where the idea of putting any kind of barrier to free access was really traumatising for people that had been institutionalised in the past. And then what are alternatives? We should be legally culpable too if we overuse antipsychotic medication or opiates to restrain people. And there is now before you use any, not so much the opiates, they're still considered to be good, but now there, there is an SIRS system and an antipsychotic registrar where you need to go through a fairly strict and rigorous review. The other thing that I'd like to say, we've talked about some of the ills and one of those is lack of exercise, lack of nutrition. The other thing is moving house. Even if it's done electively, when you look at those trauma scales for people in their lives or stress factors, has anyone moved house recently or even thought about it? Pretty awful? Pretty awful. So if you have to move house, can you imagine in your 90s, place that you've been living in for 60 years, it's a really significant life stressor and it's often associated with bereavement or the inability of your care or intimate partner to continue to care for you. So it's more than moving from one house to the other because you're not re moving to a house that you sort of got some benefits going to be bigger and better or smaller or in a nicer location or it's a very good buy. This is you're going to move into a nursing home. Not a lot to recommend it. I don't think anyone electively chooses to go into nursing homes. So this transition to care is plagued by all three ills, the poor in nutrition, the reduced mobility, and the high stress. What we have learnt from the big classic 100-bed facilities that all these private for-profit companies came in for the, and the uh, not-for-profits followed into getting economies of scale, that these facilities are not home-like at all. And with the pandemic, it's become evidence that they're not even healthy environments. Without significant re-engineering of ventilation, workflow and ability to cohort and segregate people into areas, 
puts people at mortal risk. And this isn't really something new, this ease of spread of infectious diseases in aged care. Every year we've lost people, perhaps unnecessarily, to seasonal influenza and gastroenteritis because they're really not very well designed for infection control principles. Even having enough, like, hand-washing stations, donning and doffing stations, that's been a real problem. I worked for a little while or for the last probably about a year with the state and federal government and was on the Victorian Aged Care Response Centre. And the, just the logistical problems that people had with aged care were immense in terms of storing the PPE equipment or where to do the rat tests. It just went on and on. So really these facilities that we've got aren't really best practice even from a safety point of view. And that's what most people want their family or their older person in their family to go in because they believe they will be safe. So the tapestry of care model is designed to improve this resident, family and health professional engagement. So it was the outcome of a research project that I was involved in and it includes three key components. This is a systems overview. This is something that we ask the GPs to look at and it goes from you know, heart vascular hematology down to psychiatric and neurocognitive. It was a 30-year-old tool and we applied to the guy who's probably accredited up there that I can't read if we could add dementia because when this was written, dementia was just considered to be a psychiatric illness. So we asked them, one, two, which system is infected, what is the diagnosis and what is its impact? So you get an overview of what is happening to that person from a clinical perspective. So it's a disease burden index and it's pretty easy to use. The next thing... It's called a hopes and wishes tool. If you had three wishes, what would they be? What would be the most important things to you? Very often people didn't know what to say, so then we would give another choice, like what's the difference between a good day and a bad day? What makes a good day for you? And often I think people were really stumped because it was the first time anyone had asked them a really big open-ended question. The question that they usually get asked is, have you used your bowels today? And that is hardly conducing to a really deep and thoughtful conversation about you and your life. I can remember uploading, when we moved on to an electronic healthcare record, uploading seven years of bowel charts for like 100 residents because you had to keep seven years for some reason. And it reminded me that data's not information, information's not knowledge, and knowledge is not wisdom. I don't think there was much wisdom in that charting. I think it was that routine question that was, you know, humiliating, difficult. I can remember one time I was talking to a, a woman because she had a complex pain problem and the carer, lovely carer, came in and did all the right things but then the inevitable question, the real reason she was there, have you used your bowels today? And this woman looked at me and she said, no, Mari, you know, I can cope with pain. You know that about me. What I can't cope with is this constant indignity. And I think that's a feeling that a lot of people have in aged care. So to help people with these hopes and wishes, we talk with the staff about what sort of questions. They know the people better than we did. They knew what to ask them. So these tools were designed to be updated, usually in that three-monthly cycle for resident of the day. And the next stage was, this is like a tic-tac-toe or a noughts and crosses thing, and it was, was done with focus group because we thought neurocognitive and somatic were the terms. They were body, mixed, and brain, and whether you were restoring, maintaining, or comforting, comfort care, or were you in fact at end of life. It was interesting, the GPs often saw their care as restorative. So did the physios, because they had interventions like a hot pack and a massage, or you could treat someone for an infection. 
intervention, job done, over. That's restored. Whereas the nurses and the lifestyle were more often to be down to the comfort level because they saw that day-to-day inexorable decline that you see in aged care. So even though that wasn't the purpose of our research, it was a really interesting finding. And of course, then that just segues into palliative care. One of the other things that I'd like to talk about is about our lack of exposure to aged care from, you know, nursing students, allied health, medicos, and if they don't see it, they're not likely to even consider it later on. And one of the programs that I've never been able to get a really good uh, orientation to aged care for nurses, they usually come in, do one buddy shift, they're given the keys, they're told that they're the fire warden and there's the alarm system and uh, maybe they're told who's in hospital and then you're on your own. And it's a huge responsibility, huge. We had a program that finished just, it was pre-pandemic, that's why I'm having uh, memory lapse, for medical students. And we had two medical students rotating every six weeks through aged care. They clerked for the GPs and they responded to nurses' concerns. So if someone had a fall, if someone suddenly deteriorated, they could ask the medico to, the medical student to work them up and then present to the GP. And it was a really fabulously enlightening and rewarding experience for the nurses who had these were final year medical students, so they were pretty keen to get out there and have opinions. It was a really fabulous experience for them. I can remember one time there was a woman that I was told had an adjustment disorder. She had come in because her husband was demented. They'd come in together and she had quite severe osteoarthritis and had a knee replacement. She was constantly complaining that her knee wasn't, you know, that the, the surgery was unsuccessful. She went back to see her orthopod. He said, there's nothing wrong with the knee replacement, it's all working perfectly functionally. The family thought she's just complaining because she never did want to go into aged care. Anyhow, so I thought I'd go and see her and I asked her where the pain was and exactly what was happening. And she walked and I thought, she's fractured a hip. That's what the problem is. Another thing about palliative care, it's often not that nurses don't have the requisite skills to manage palliative care. Some of the things that they don't have is the confidence that they will be available to that person frequently enough, say particularly on a late and evening shift, or the personal care workers that, that can deal with it. And simply, they might not even have enough advanced prescribing to provide end-of-life medication. And that's where practice nurses and GPs come in so that nurses are better prepared to provide that essential care. So I guess in empowering nurses in the future. First is that sort of recognition of how complex things are, to give them a voice, which I'm really pleased to see. That is kind of the mission of APNA, and to recognise our history. And a little bit like reconciliation and truth-telling, I think that's what's got to happen. Thanks for listening to Nursing Australia.